Hello and welcome to History Lesson Part 2, Part 2. This is the first two-parter in show history. Uh, Tyler and I had, I guess, so much to say about the 1946 classic It's a Wonderful Life that we had to stretch it out over two episodes. Because let's be real, nobody wants to listen to a two and a half hour long podcast. Uh, that's that's obscene. Uh, having said that, though, uh, there's a lot of good stuff in this one. Uh, just as much good stuff as, in the, as was in the last one. So I couldn't justify it to myself to just cut it all down. So in this one, Tyler and I talk a little bit more about our differing interpretations of the film and then get into uh, this movie's sort of uh, second life as a uh, Christmas classic that came much later on down the road and also its reputation as being uh, communist propaganda. So I, uh, I won't uh, go any farther, but hopefully you guys enjoy this. And uh, just to set the scene, um, for those of you that kind of forgot where we were in the last one, Tyler and I were just about to discuss whether or not uh, the film should be taken as a criticism or endorsement of capitalism. So here we go. Potter is the villain of the movie in the sense that he is the detestable figure, the evil guy that you direct your 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 hate towards. Like it's a traditional uh kind of movie. It has to have a traditional villain, a bad guy for you to root against that contrasts to the good guy that you root for. But I would argue that uh the real enemy of the movie is not actually even capitalism, but randomness. It, despite having religious overtones, there's a deep sense throughout the movie that people are completely at the whims of just the chaos and the randomness of the universe. Because if you think about the things that actually fuck George over initially, it's on one end bad timing. So his father dying right as he's going to go to uh, do this important milestone in his life. And then the second thing that most fucks him over, that most keeps him in Bedford Falls, like, yes, Potter is part of it, but it's not, Potter's not the reason why he has to give up his money necessarily. He He's an influence on it, but the reason that he actually has to do it, the, the defining event, is not Potter doing something. It's the Great Depression happening. Right. But that's not ra- that's not randomness. That's capitalism. Well, sure, certainly. No, I, I, you're, you're right. Like, I, I, when I say randomness, I don't mean, um, I don't mean like the Great Depression happening is not random. The Great Depression happening literally on your wedding day, the day yeah. you are going to go on your honeymoon, for is sure. random. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure, and the, for sure. The way these events, when they happen, and how they affect you, and what the timing of it is, is largely random. You know, there was mm-hmm. not. The, the invisible hand of the market did not reach out to make sure George Bailey couldn't go on his honeymoon. That he just got caught in the crossfire, right? You know, and but there's the invisible. A, and, but you could say, well, okay. I mean, I I, I hear you, and I don't mean to derail your point. No, no. But yeah. I would just jump in and say, yeah, the invisible hand didn't intervene for it to happen right on the eve of his honeymoon. But the Great Depression was going to happen, and it was going to influence. Yeah. And it was going to change George's life no matter what, one way or another. Capitalism sure. was yeah. going to intervene and fuck things up for them, which is exactly why, for me, it's like mm-hmm. you need to have an answer that is more meaningful, an answer that addresses that fact. You know, it's like, again, okay, they, I will, they diagnose the problem, 
but they don't have the solution. Yes. Sorry for derailing you. And I will, I will get back to that because I agree. I, I completely agree with you. There's no, there's no solution in this, in this movie. Uh, there's no political program in this movie. And the people who populate the movie are political actors, but they, I would argue they do not realize it. Mm-hmm. And I would say that thing number one, I, I, I do just thank my lucky stars that this movie does not have a socialist in it. Uh, who is contrasted with George Bailey as being the bad type of person who True. wants to change yeah. things or redistribute wealth or the guy who wants to go too far. Like you're this, right. Th- yeah, this that movie would be worse. Is, <laughs> yeah. is much better being what it is than, than having the, like, you know, the chance for, for it, them being like, Oh, we should address uh trade unionism or yeah, socialism yeah, or whatever. Yeah. That's a good the, point. The chance that that would be uh, addressed badly. Yeah. Right. That's a fair point. But I, I also think that the the lack of kind of anyone really um, having any overtly political conversations is valid in in terms of the fact that it is a movie about a small town with relatively kind of not particularly worldly people who are very much like they're good people, they're nice people, but they're maybe a little closed off or they're a little like ignorant. And I don't, you know, I, I don't think the, the, the movie is specifically about class struggle because I don't think the people that are in the movie know what class struggle is. Uh, and so it's not, I guess, from my perspective, I, they're forgiven for that a little bit be, by their, um, so by their ignorance, I guess, to some extent. Like, and, and you could argue that maybe that's, not realistic. Yeah, I, I, I would argue that. I mean, we got we got Giuseppe of, the Italian immigrant. Come on, that's true. Giuseppe yeah, the Italian immigrant knows class struggle. He just escaped the being at the wrong end of class struggle, right? Cert- certainly, yeah. But at the same time, the the other thing, one of the things that I like about this movie is that the characters in it are not. It's not even that they're not perfect. A lot of them are very deeply flawed, and a lot of them are are prevented from. You know, if you want to compare it to Parasite a little bit, like a lot of things in this movie, uh, there's a lot of similarities in terms of people being prevented in some way from being political actors or from having now, obviously, the townspeople in this movie do show solidarity, but they could have more in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And a character like Martini, it's not outlandish to me that his main concern would be. Oh boy, there's gee, is there sure a lot of fighting and unrest over there? I'm just so glad to be here in America and have a house and yeah, of have nice neighbors and and yada 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 yada, you know. And yeah. so that that kind of brings me to, I guess, what my reading of the movie is and 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 what I like about it and and how the political valence of it plays a role in why I I like it, but also is not perfect you know it's not i don't think it's a socialist movie necessarily but it's it has more of an impact on me or it rings more true or there's 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 something cathartic about it for me specifically that i don't think would be there necessarily if it was more explicit and so what i guess i mean by that is that i i actually think that along the margins of this movie uh kind of lurking in the background is a an actual deep deep cynicism the kind of cynicism that bong joon ho might have you might say <laughs> about things like solidarity the ability to challenge capitalism the ability to uh win in any meaningful way in the fight for class struggle 
because if you look at what happens in this movie, essentially, and this is very interesting and, and very unique, I think the bad guy in this movie is not punished in any way whatsoever. Right. He steals $8,000 from the poor guy and no one ever mm-hmm. finds out or catches him. No one ever knows. He is completely ignored at the end of the movie in favor of a scene that is, I would say, uplifting, obviously. But, you know, this scene of the victory is just that George Bailey is OK mm-hmm. and that he has a, a, a maybe a more positive outlook on life and feels better about himself or whatever, which is, you know, also, I think probably the the most value that this movie has in the sense of like what it does for the viewer what it can inspire in the viewer is the idea that even if it's not a particularly subversive one necessarily the idea that like everyone's life has value and you are not a failure just because you like for instance i don't know work at fucking kinkos or whatever you know (laughs) like 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 the 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 idea that like yeah well there's guys every day who get zero credit guys and girls and those who lieth betwixt, ev- who work the shittiest jobs in the world, the jobs you'd never even think of, who nevertheless do heroic things without even really realizing it, you know? And that's that's probably the 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 most value it has, like, philosophically or in terms of what it can inspire in the viewer. But mm-hmm. I think there is this, this very deep cynicism lurking in the in, in the margins because it's like, what is it actually sort of saying? And I don't know that this is intentional, but as we're going to get to in a second, so many people worked on this movie that I don't think it has one specific intent. Mm-hmm. I think it has a bunch of people putting different things in or things getting left over from old mm-hmm. revisions or whatever that just make it more interesting. Basically, That actually tracks, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be interested in, and we can maybe turn to that because I'm, I'm interested in that, that aspect of it. That tracks for me. Like it does feel like it could be something that is is written by different people and therefore in in moments pushes in in contradictory directions because i you know listening to you talk about the kind of the the message um mm-hmm. i'm torn like i'm i'm torn in two directions yeah. about it i i both agree with you that valorizing people's inherent value is important mm-hmm. and and the, the simple point that like you know being wealthy and powerful doesn't make you better um, and and that true wealth, you know, true riches exist in our relationships, uh, you know, with other people. I mean, that's fine. I'm I'm totally. I don't know if you noticed it, but there is a there is a plaque. I believe it's in the scene, uh, my, my our favorite scene where he gives the speech. Maybe it's not best described as a plaque uh, behind George. Uh, it's a photo and a plaque. It's a photo of, of his father uh, with a plaque underneath it with a quote on it that says. All you can take with you is that which you've given away. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I which I did. That. Which I know is is very. Um, it's a little cheesy, but it's also a very. Uh, I think like a very very good from from just like a a humanist philosophy kind of perspective. A very good little slogan that is a nice little positive uh, spin on you can't take it with you. Yeah, I mean it is right. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. That sentiment, I think, and this that sentiment and this film lies in a, a really nebulous zone yes, between yeah. the uh, the valuable message that we all of us, you know, 
should adhere to, which is that, yes, true value obviously doesn't come from the wealth you possess, but those relationships that you form and the ways that you treat people. But that is also eerily, eerily uh, similar to basic Christian and other religious um, excuses for poverty and inequality. And absolutely and yes, like like all that you can take with you is that right? which you've given away. Yeah, could very easily just be like an argument for make as much money as possible and then be a philanthropist. Sure, yeah, totally. But, or just or just blessed be the poor. You know, uh, the weak yes. shall inherit but I the will earth. Say all of these things, which are. The, uh, sorry, no. I just I will say that I think the movie contradicts that because yeah, it does uh, because times. like if if it doesn't if it if it was meant to be a thing about private charity and make as much money as you can so you can give it away. George Bailey would have done that. Sure. He doesn't. Yeah. He he very specifically over and over again, chooses to be more impoverished than he needs to be because it's the right thing to do. So while I, while I will say that like there are things in the movie that sort of could be taken in that direction, there's also kind of always something else to contradict it. Yeah, it does. It has, and again, that's where it, you know I do get the sense that maybe different writers pull it at different threads of it because sure, yeah. There's definitely times where I just think like, you know, this is a this is a Christian film about like being a good Christian and not mm-hmm. being acquisitive and not wanting to have all the all the wealth and all the possessions, but just to be a good Christian who gives away what they can, helps everyone when they can, and that may seem nice on the surface, but is ultimately deeply reactionary insofar as it tells us don't fight for anything sure. better, allow the inequalities yes. that exist to continue to exist, um, you know, and, and the oppressions to continue to exist and just be grateful for what you've got. But then obviously, you know, there are moments where George is, is pushing and fighting. So like, I'll grant you mm-hmm. that it's not, it's not just that it just sits in that weird zone. And maybe the, like, you know, this thing about there being multiple writers, maybe that kind of explains it. Yeah. So to finish my point about the cynicism of it, like basically, I guess what I would what I would say is, well, okay, there's one interpretation of this movie that I just thought of last night that is so depressing that I don't even want to spend any time on it. But I did have the thought of like, what if everything that happens after the moment that Clarence like the that moment where Clarence uh, jumps in the water? What if that and everything uh, after it is just. George Bailey did kill himself, and this is just DMT <laughs> fantasy that he's having as he dies. Um, but that is just so depressing that I just don't even want to. I don't even want to engage with it. But I did have that thought, uh, and it kind of like made me laugh in a morbid sort of way. Um, the other thing that you can't help but laugh at is the idea. It's never been done. It's been kind of mentioned or or referenced, but it's never been done effectively. Is like the idea of like, what if like you did this, like your guardian angel did this, and then it 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 turns out like. Oh shit, everything's actually way better. And, uh, and like the, the, you just, the, the, the angel just kind of slowly like starts trying to like, kind of like tug on, on the jacket and be like, Oh fuck, we gotta, we gotta bail. Like we gotta stop doing this or, yeah. or, 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 you know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna end up making the opposite point. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe George turns out to be a big jazz aficionado. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I think you, you make the case and it's not certainly not Capra's intention, but like you sort of make the case that that this movie is really deeply cynical about what is possible without class consciousness. Right. Yeah. It's like, OK, well, without class consciousness, you can literally have divine intervention. <laughs> right. And the best that you can the best that you will come up with is that the 
horrible evil capitalist goes completely unpunished is eight thousand dollars richer but you get to live to fight another day yeah yeah and there's other things that sort of point to a cynicism about you individually will be better off if you just you know i need to do what's best for me and my family that's a thing that george bailey could have very easily said after he was offered that that job by potter or whatever and i'm not saying that it is Certainly not Capra's intent what, what, with the movie that he thought he was making, but there is this uh, this element to it of like what what is actually the result of the movie? It is not a, a triumph. It's not actually this triumphant victory for the little people of the town. It's a it's a celebration of them. It seeks to uh, them into into little heroes, I guess you you might say. But like the the ultimate endpoint of the story is that nothing has really changed even like i said with divine intervention the capitalist is not punished because he cannot be because the best institution that this town has because there is no class consciousness is like this building and loan where the guy does the nice thing because Mm -hmm. he's nice uh because he's almost honestly because he's guilty like because he's guilted into being a, a a better person or whatever yeah and the, and I think that, that that kind of bears out when you look at how flawed he actually is. He does the right thing. He does good things. He's a generous person. But he's not Christ-like. He is deeply resentful of the fact that he's had to do this over and mm-hmm. over again. And there's a great... One thing I can't separate when it comes to this movie is how much I just relate to it on a personal mm-hmm. level. But, like, the way he gets mad... Mm-hmm. is like yeah. so relatable to me mm-hmm. like that thing where he has the it's it's the i don't even know what it's called but like the thing on his railing to go up yeah. the stairs yeah, that's yeah. broken yeah. and and he just it's broken and it falls off all the time and when he's really mad it falling off mm-hmm. just fucking just makes him lose it whereas most yeah. of the time it's just this minor like oh yeah fuck i gotta stop putting my hand on that it's broken oh that's yeah. annoying or whatever he lashes out at his kids, says yeah. some things that are really, really mean, like mm-hmm. some things that are really. But, you know, like you're watching it and it's like, well, he would never say this stuff if he wasn't so mm-hmm. like if he wasn't literally so distraught that he's contemplating suicide. Right. Like <laughs> the morbidly funny. Why do we have to have all these fucking kids? Yeah. <laughs> thing, yeah. You know, I like, know. I know. Uh, you know, like, again, just we've all been there where we said something that. We didn't, you know, we didn't mean because because we were upset or whatever. And, and uh, this is this is something that's been remarked upon by other critics when they talk about this movie. Like there there are some people who think this movie is actually really deeply depressing, like mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, it's it's about being being stuck in a town full of one. One critic said it's like it's about uh, watching everyone in your life get older, constantly giving yourself over to for the benefit of a bunch of small minded people watching your ambitions uh die away as you get older that reading of the movie is just a person who doesn't understand like that yeah. there's more to life than just your own personal yeah. uh, pleasure yeah. and edification or whatever but like that that cynicism and that sadness is there and and what makes his what makes his his that that's those scenes are 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 so powerful not just because like yeah we've all sort of been there where you know we're pushed to the brink but he specifically he is feeling resentful about having given of himself and not gotten back. 
Like that's quite yes. specifically what's happening there. He he is reflecting on a lifetime of sacrificing his own ideals or not ideals, but his own his own wishes, his own needs, his own wants. You know, he wants to travel, he wants to take Mary on a honeymoon, all these things. He's been sacrificing those things his whole life in order to, you know, sustain everyone else in the community at some level. And you're right, he is not Christ-like about it. He is understandably resentful in the moments where it falls apart and and he can't get any support which is i think yeah like it's brilliantly done it's such a it's such a well executed emotional like portrayal of an emotional experience that yeah in societies where there is no class struggle i 100% relate to you know i won't be specific but there's ways in which i've given of myself you know, and, and got nothing in return except headaches and, and frustration. And that particular type of, I'm not getting the solidarity that I'm trying to put out. That's so specific and unique to, uh, you know, a particular kind of context, which is both why I, I love the way it's portrayed. And I also, I, I was so disappointed when like, there is this obvious kind of thing where it's like, yeah, you, what you need to do is build the mm-hmm. foundations of yes. a system where people would, in fact, mutually, consistently support one another. And, you know, and, and not just because an angel intervenes, but, you know, yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think there's probably an element to it, too, where you're maybe a little bit harder on this movie be because of its the time it came out than you would be on a newer movie because it's because that the idea that that could be expressed has has atrophied more and more. Sure. Time, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but. What I will say is that because I mentioned that I was going to talk a little bit about Parasite and just compare the two. Like, to me, this is sort of a movie that makes a lot of the same, whether intentionally or not, makes a lot of the same points that Bong Joon-ho makes about like, I somewhat facetiously said uh, that Bong Joon-ho is like, better things aren't possible, but socialist. Mm -hmm. And, And obviously, like, like I said, I'm being a little bit facetious there, but like, there's this deep cynicism. There's this like... I'm I, he's deeply skeptical about the ability to actually do anything for a bunch of different reasons, be they systemic, I would argue sometimes personal, um, but, you know, your mileage may vary. This movie is kind of, I think, similar, where people are prevented by circumstance, by the randomness of uh, and chaos of life, by their total lack of class consciousness, which which you could argue is intentional or not. And the only real difference is that in some ways it's almost... It's almost more cynical in that, yes, still nothing changes, but nothing changes in spite of the fact that people have solidarity with one another. Because solidarity with the absence of class consciousness doesn't really mean much other than like people being good to each other and being mm-hmm. nice to each other. And so yeah. uh, for for me, this is almost like, in a sense, like a Bong Joon-ho movie where, ah, yes, the 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 people, they live to fight another day or whatever, or but they can't. They can't defeat capitalism because whatever it is in in Bong Joon Ho movies, it's that they're atomized or whatever. The people in this movie are not certainly not atomized, but like there are impediments to in Bong Joon Ho movies, it's solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, although I would argue it's not like it's not like the heroes in Bong Joon Ho movies are universally class conscious, right? No, some no. more than others. But but the, but, the, but, yeah. but in the in the case of Bong Joon Ho movies, they he he shows us why he shows us the structural sure. okay. reasons why they can't. Whereas, I mean, I think 
you're much more generous to this film than I am on this point because sure. you're willing to sort of say the film is showing us what happens without class consciousness. But I think mm-hmm. the film itself just lacks. I think the film is just intentionally showing us that sure. because it lacks it. And it, you know, when, when the fucking hee haw capitalist guy who gets rich in, okay. in plastics comes in and makes a donation to George at the end, it's That's like, oh, come on. actually amazing though. <laughs> come on. Really? It, okay. No, no. Yes. Like in a in a sense, right? Because it's it's it is kind of a Deus Ex Machina where, but it's it's the uh, ending that I argued for in Okja, right? Kind of, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, true, true. And, you did, yeah. and it and it's and what ultimately happens? What literally George Bailey having a rich friend who is like, ah, fuck it, I'll give you money, matters <laughs> right. more than God intervening in his life to stop him from <laughs> killing himself. What's yeah, the thing true. that actually saves him? He knows a rich guy. Yeah, yeah. He was like, true. oh, fuck, I knew that guy. I went to high school with him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, give him some money. I don't, I don't want him to go to jail. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Okay. It's like I said, there's like, there's maybe it's just meant at face value, but, and, and that is part of this movie for me is like, what it intended is, is less important for me than what I take from it. Sure. Right? Uh, that's fair. That's fair. And that's totally everybody could, like I said, mileage may, may vary or whatever, but yeah, yeah. Wh- whether it's intentional or not, to me, this is almost like, it's a more uplifting. It's, it's it's a more cathartic and uplifting, a version of of a Bong Joon Ho almost like type story, where yeah, you're gonna lose. You're not gonna you know you're not gonna be able to do what you want to do. Everyone is impeded from building anything better. But the difference is this is in spite of the fact that actually the the working class people in the movie, in most cases, actually do try to do the right thing and be. Uh, good to each other rather than just fucking each other over, which I, I guess it's different for everyone, but I can certainly say for me is more true to life, more true to my experience. Like I don't, uh, in my relatively working class life, walk around every day seeing people fucking each other over at every turn. I mostly see people at least trying to do the right thing. But again, that's probably has a lot to do with who my friends are and where I am and what I do and I'm sure it's very different for other people. That brings me to um the production notes, which we'll we'll end on here because this movie is not just interesting in terms of how you can analyze it, but it's a piece of history. And it's a very important piece of history because it's one of a handful of movies that is mentioned in a HUAC uh FBI file about communist subversion in film. <laughs> the FBI disagreed with me, apparently. <laughs> The FBI disagreed with you, yes. And so did Ayn Rand. Um, Ayn Rand hated oh, this man. movie. And uh, she was the one who actually basically tipped off the FBI about its uh, its subversive um, qualities. And I, I do not um, present this as evidence for my point necessarily, yeah, yeah, because yeah. because ultimately Ayn Rand thinks everything is communist or thought <laughs> yeah. everything was communist propaganda. So the fact that she thought this was communist propaganda doesn't really mean much to me, but it is interesting. And there is at least maybe some evidence for it in in uh, uh, certain ways. And I'll get back to the Ayn Rand and FBI thing in a minute, but I just want to very, very briefly talk about um, the people who worked on this. So the, the, the main, there, there are a couple who worked on the script who weren't particularly interesting. I think there were about, uh, let's see here. Let's just quickly look one, two, three, four, five, six. I think about eight people worked on the script for this movie and two of them weren't particularly interesting. And the other six were, interesting for some reason or another so this was credited mainly to the duo uh husband and wife duo of francis goodrich and albert hackett they 
outside of this movie are best known for writing the screen adaptation of the movie The Thin Man. Oh, yeah. Which uh, I, I have never seen. I don't know anything about it. But The Thin Man uh, novel that it is based on uh, is written or was written rather by Dashiell Hammett, uh, who some listeners may know was uh, one of the people on the Hollywood blacklist. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a communist. Um, mm-hmm. Dalton Trumbo, another person who was blacklisted, also worked on a version of the script, as well as Clifford Odets. He's one of the guys I don't really remember uh, as well, and I don't have anything written down for, but I know he also had a relationship to the Communist Party in some manner or another. I think a a relatively, um, I don't want to say tenuous one. Like, I think he was a member, but he just wasn't a member for very long, or like he went to a couple meetings, or and so I don't know how connected he was necessarily, but uh, um, he was certainly a guy that the FBI keyed in on, nevertheless. Now, the FBI keyed in on a whole fuck ton of people for a bunch of different reasons, some of which, you know, it's like I kind of said about Ayn Rand, like in the mm-hmm. fi- in the 40s and 50s, the FBI thought everyone was a communist. So mm-hmm. it's not like uh, we're we're this is necessarily evidence or anything. But um, more interesting uh, were the, the last two people who worked on this movie, who are uh, Michael Wilson, who is a very interesting guy who also uh, was blacklisted. Um, he, like Trumbo, continued to work. Uh, while he was being blacklisted, but under a uh, pseudonym, under a pen name. Uh, and some of the things that he worked on uncredited um, were uh, Planet of the Apes. He actually basically wrote that movie, hmm. even though it was credited entirely to the guy who wrote the book. You know, this was common practice when guys were blacklisted. They would yeah. have like they'd have one guy come in, uh, you know, be like, uh, what if he said, uh, uh, here instead of the, yeah. and then they'd give the writing credit to that guy, you know? Yeah. Uh, he also worked on, uh, the script for Bridge on the River Kwai and some other, like, critically acclaimed movies. And he also wrote two unproduced scripts, uh, for movies, one about the IWW hmm. and one about the, uh, it, it just said the infiltration of the Black Liberation Movement. Hmm. I don't know what that means necessarily. Was this guy, because he he lived quite a lot longer than than after this movie came came out. I wonder if maybe he was trying to make Judas and the Black Messiah like 50 years before Judas mm-hmm. and the Black Messiah got made. And then the other interesting person who worked on the script for this movie is Dorothy Parker, who worked a lot in Hollywood, was also eventually blacklisted. I'm just going to read from the Wikipedia article here. She covered the loyalist cause in the Spanish Civil War for communist magazine The Masses, and also at the behest of behest of Otto Katz, a covert Soviet Comintern agent and operative of German Communist Party agent Will Munzenberg, helped to found the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League in 1936, Dope. which the FBI suspected of being a Communist Party front. Parker also served as chair of the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee's fundraising arm, Spanish Refugee Appeal. She organized Project Rescue Ship to transport loyalist veterans to Mexico. Uh, after the war, headed um, Spanish Children's Relief and uh, lent her name to many other left-wing causes and organizations. Parker was listed as a communist by the publication Red Channels in 1950, and the FBI compiled a 1,000-page dossier on her because of her suspected involvement in communism during the era when Senator Joseph McCarthy was raising alarms about communists in government and Hollywood. As a result, movie studio bosses placed her on the Hollywood blacklist. And then there's just a very uh, cute thing here where uh, eventually the the NAACP paid for her headstone after yeah. she died. 
And um, one of the things on the headstone said that her suggestion for what would be on her headstone was excuse the dust. She was cremated, which I thought was very funny. Yeah. So anyways, um, all of these people worked on this script at some point. What they contributed is kind of who the fuck knows. Uh, Dalton Trumbo's version was in, a, in that. Apparently, George Bailey is a politician. And the the what um, he's shown by Clarence's life, if he had gone into business instead of politics, oh. um, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, once again, I, I don't know how much of any of uh, the, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know how much survived, but there were certainly people with a uh, with a left wing philosophy working on the script of this movie. How much of it is intentional? How much of it survives? How mm-hmm. much of it is actively worked against by Capra is totally up for debate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did think find it very interesting because. I went into this being like, oh, okay, yeah, the people who wrote it, like, adapted a Dashiell Hammett book. That's probably the closest thing this comes to mm-hmm. having any kind of socialist connection or whatever. And then was deeply surprised to see all of the people who worked on the script at some point and what their histories were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. It does it does really suggest... It, 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 it goes a long way in explaining why the movie seems to have these contradictory impulses. Like we said, you know, almost 90 minutes ago that you could take this film (laughs) and, and pull it one way and it could become pretty, pretty fascist and you could pull it another way and it could become pretty socialist. And, you know, I wonder if that's, I mean, that is explained by having a bunch of different writers who were of the left uh, and a director who was of the right and, and a lot of these competing influences kind of maybe getting mashed together and a lot of compromises in how it ends up coming out like that maybe explains some of those contradictions. Mm-hmm. It's dialectical, if you will, almost. <laughs> probably once again, not intentionally. But yeah, uh, as as we as we will continue to uh, to to parse out here, uh, I uh, do not necessarily care that much about intention. I care mm-hmm. just more about how it how it hits me specifically I've learned um, that. so I, I i will uh just read from a an article here quickly about uh the ayn rand fbi connection here this is from an article in flavor wow called it's a wonderful life had an fbi file and it's kind of hilarious um according to historian john a noakes who analyzed the fbi's 13,533 page communist infiltration of the motion picture industry file. The Los Angeles field office pinpointed eight films in general release in 1947 as possible carries of stealthy commie propaganda to determine which films were subversive and to identify the actual subversive content. Noakes writes, the Los Angeles field office utilized a report issued by a self-assembled group of motion pictures, writers, producers, and directors who had been alerted to the common menace within the industry. This ad hoc group identified three categories of common devices used to turn non-political pictures into carriers of political propaganda. The group included Fountainhead writer and future Tea Party pinup girl Ayn Rand, who had herself, according to her own FBI file, published a booklet which was designed for the furnishing of information concerning the type of communist propaganda used in motion pictures. Sadly, we have no way of knowing if the Dower Rand wrote the hilarious report on It's a Wonderful Life and all of its subversive themes. It may have been her... Or she may have been assigned to write up some of the other very dangerous titles on the list, like Best Years of Our Lives, The Farmer's Daughter, or I'm not making this up, Abbott and Costello's Buck Privates Go Home. (laughs) Anyway, to It's a Wonderful Life, the vile piece of red propaganda that you've been unknowingly welcoming into your home for all these years, the film's analysis from the FBI file breaks down into three general complaints. 
One, written by communist sympathizers. According to Redacted, the writers Francis Goodrick, Francis Goodrick, sick, and Albert Hackett were very close to known communists, and on one occasion in the recent past, while these two writers were doing a picture for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Goodrick and Hackett uh, practically lived with known communists as Lester Cole, screenwriter, and Earl Robinson, screenwriter. For the record, Fran- uh, writers Francis Goodrich and Albert Haggett's other credits include such hilariously pro-communist titles as The Diary of Anne Frank, Easter Parade, and Father of the Bride. Um, I mean, maybe they are maybe they are communist property. What do I know? I've never yeah. seen them. I'd yeah. like to know. Um, two, attempting to instigate class warfare. In addition, Redacted stated that, in his opinion, this picture deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show the people who had money uh were mean and despicable characters <laughs> three demonizing bankers <laughs> redacted stated in substance that the film represented a rather obvious attempt to discredit bankers by casting lionel barrymore as a scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture this according to these sources is a common trick used by communists oh yes redacted related that if he had made this picture portraying the banker he would have shown this individual to have been following the rules as laid down by the state bank examiners in connection with making loans uh which is which is a very hilarious uh reversing of what people think i thought about parasite uh which is like why aren't the working class people in this movie all heroes uh, aren't all really good people or whatever if somebody watched this movie and was like uh why isn't the banker following all the rules as laid (laughs) out by the yeah yeah i also um uh there's also uh a couple of very funny we we've gone really long so i won't like read from them but there were a couple of uh somebody compiled a couple of like funny conservative responses to it's a wonderful life uh one of which uh kind of began with like think of it from potter's point of view <laughs> and like basically uh basically the 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 running theme in uh in both of them was like this idea the idea that I talked about a second ago of basically being like, uh, ah, well, if he really effective altruism, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, if he really uh, wanted to help so many people, like uh, uh, one of the guys says, I want to imagine uh, George Bailey in a penthouse in New York with Vi- Violet Beck talking about how he's going to build a dam in South America. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds great. It sounds inspirational. That sounds like a a thing that uh, that a very good person would do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my last note, uh, though, that I wanted to make about this movie that hugely affects why I enjoy it so much is how it became what it is now. Because this movie was not super well received when it came out, and it wasn't intended to be a Christmas movie necessarily. Like it was kind of ca- they tried to capitalize on it uh, by releasing it at. at uh, during the holidays but capra and people involved didn't necessarily see it as a christmas movie and i didn't it failed to uh break even and uh it kind of uh, i did think it was i do think it was nominated for an oscar but those were that was a much smaller you know thing at the time really just kind of not a lot of people saw it a lot of the people who saw it liked it but a fair amount didn't as well found it kind of too sentimental etc etc but it became a Christmas classic in a very interesting way. And I, uh, to sort of close out, and I'll let you give your final thoughts at the end, um, I'm going to just read from this article called It's a Wonderful Life from Festive Flop to Christmas Classic. There's a little uh, introduction here that I'm going to skip over that just sort of explains what the deal with the movie is. And then the uh, the author, who I don't believe is credited, sadly, but this is an article. Uh, this is a BBC article. 
So how did a film which deals with dark themes and which failed to perform at the box office, falling $525,000 short of its break-even point, manage to become what many think of as the definitive Christmas movie? It all came down to, to a legal loophole. The U.S. Copyright Act of 1909, which protected films published before 1964, gave a body of work an initial, an initial copyright term of 28 years. At the end of that first term, the copyright holder was permitted to apply for a second term of 28 years. In 1974, at the end of its initial term of copyright, Republic Pictures, the original copyright owners of It's a Wonderful Life, failed to apply for the second term, most probably due to a clerical error, and the film fell into the public domain. It was at this point that American television studios, who were always on the lookout for cheap content, picked it up and, for almost two decades, played it over the festive holidays. It was these repeated royalty-free broadcasts that wove George Bailey, Mary Hatch, Clarence Oddbody, and Uncle Billy into the fabric of our festive season. Capra later told the Wall Street Journal, it's the damnedest thing I've ever seen. The film has taken on a life of its own now, and I can look at it like I had nothing to do with it. And there's, uh, just to interject here, there is a another quote from Capra where he says, uh, it's a wonderful life is like having your kid grow up to be president. It's nice and you're proud, but you kind of feel like you didn't really have anything to do with it. And he talks a lot about how he feels like the movie is not his, which I find interesting. Things changed in 1993, however. While the film itself had fallen out of copyright, the story which it was based upon, The Greatest Gift, had not, and in fact was now owned by Republic Pictures. And following a landmark ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court in a separate case three years earlier, which determined that only the copyright owner of a story has the right to exploit derivative works such as films, Republic regained control of the picture. Today, NBC is now the only U.S. broadcaster licensed to show the film on network television, and Paramount, who acquired Republic in 1998, controls the distribution. The film's days of festive season saturation may be over, but thanks to those two lapsed decades, It's a Wonderful Life will remain a Christmas classic for many years to come. And so I find this very interesting. Uh, one, I do love that this is a movie that uh, became beloved because it became free. <laughs> yeah. It's impossible not to like that. Yeah. But uh, I also find it interesting because it kind of mirrors the interpretation that I had uh, that I have of the whole movie which is that which is like it's this funny thing where it unintentionally uh grows into something maybe more more special more uh politically sophisticated more philosophically important than was maybe intended kind of by accident but then ultimately at the end capitalism prevails and nothing really changes (laughs) and so i find it uh kind of funny how uh, it's 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 uh, second life as a TV movie basically, and uh, then getting uh, you know NBC or Republic Pictures or whatever getting their clutches back on it kind of mirrors uh, both my interpretation of it behind the scenes uh, being sort of unintentionally made into a movie with some subversive stuff in it, and then also just the plot of the movie where uh, something really cool and and like uh, potentially socialist e happens. And then, of course, you—the best you can do is uh, live to fight another day while yeah. uh, while the the asshole rich person gets richer. I guess just a just a GoFundMe at the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If this movie was made now, uh, George George Bailey's wife would uh, post a GoFundMe, <laughs> yeah. and it would go viral. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's cool. Uh, I I I am glad that you forced me to watch it. I would mm-hmm. not have watched it otherwise, and. 
Um, I am richer for having seen it. Well, that's good. Um, that's about the best I could hope for. I yeah, no, I am glad. However, um, you know, what I think, what I think watching and talking about this film necessitates is that some, at some point in 2023, we have to watch, uh, either, you know, choose one or watch a series of Italian neorealist films from the same sure. time. Yes, you know, we, we absolutely. have to watch some Rossellini or De Sica to sort of see, like, you know, at the exact same time period, what are the, what is that group of directors doing and and how is it different, you know, from this? And, and and can those films do all of the things that this does and yet also um, you know, have more radical politics and have offer more radical solutions, be less cynical about like there's nothing we can do except have a GoFundMe, but actually, mm-hmm. you know, there is something we can do and people are doing it, let's do it. Because I do think that that comparison will help it'll at least it'll help my critique of this film make sense because you know a lot of what you've said is fair and i and i accept a lot of your defense of the film um and i should say too i appreciate you letting me spend two hours going after your favorite film of all time yeah it's a brave move you giving me the opportunity to speak about it at such length uh, for such a long time. I, because I do, I love this movie uh, on, on a level that, uh, that kind of does just doesn't compare with any other movies. I, I was in a band that had a song about it. I <laughs> shit you not. Um, and uh, yeah, it, uh, it it's also, uh, it's also nice that we were able to do a Christmas movie. Like, yeah. That's yeah. not a, that necessarily an easy thing to do for, for a show with uh with this kind of intention. So I know. And we didn't have um, to do die hard. So yeah, fuck <laughs> sick oh, of that. Thank God. Uh, and yeah, I, I will say um, to another thing that I would like to do in addition to what you described is I would also, I think at some point in the new year, maybe around like episode 10, I'd like to do an episode uh, about kind of what we're looking for in movies, how we grade them, what our criteria are so that people can better understand uh, where we're coming from and what our sort of philosophy is, because I feel like um, the last two episodes that we've done have really laid bare uh, the the fact that uh, we both have very different um, things that we're looking for. And yeah. we're we're both kind of uh, swayed by different things. And it might be uh, nice to kind of pin some of those down. So, yeah. Good idea. Anyways, on that note, uh, thank you for listening to this incredibly long episode that if it is as long as I think it is, I may split up into two parts. I'm going to try to get this edited as quickly as possible so that it comes out with a reasonable time amount of time between uh, the episode dropping and Christmas time. Uh, But uh, to all of you who listen, thank you. Uh, Happy happy holidays. Uh, Season's greetings to all who celebrate uh, greetings and holidays, the only things that I'm legally allowed to acknowledge because of the war on uh, the, the holiday that the chants speak its name. Um, so, yeah. The liberals. Thanks, this is what the liberals have done. Uh, yes, absolutely. This movie owned the libs. Yeah. We g- give yeah. it credit for that. It owned both types of libs. It, it did. It, it did. owned uh, the, the, the regular libs by having fascism in it. And uh, <laughs> it owned the, the other type of libs, libertarians, yeah. by having wealth uh, redistribution. Yeah, that's so. true. Uh, that's, uh, it's, it's the best type of, uh, of movie. It's a both sides movie. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> uh, we'll see you next time.